Let's talk about your next patient. So this gentleman, a 63-year-old Vietnam veteran who had had exposure to dioxin, also known as Agent Orange, he was referred to me with long-standing cytopenias. And I'll be honest with you, I thought this workup was going to be a sort of a pan-cytopenia workup, so I did a bone marrow biopsy on him. To give you an idea, he had a white blood cell count in the 3.5 to 4 range and platelets in the 100 to 130 range. So I did a bone marrow biopsy and had the somewhat unexpected finding of a fairly high plasma cell burden, 40% cellular bone marrow, but 90% of that was plasma cells. And fish studies came back and showed translocation of the immunoglobulin heavy gene locus. At the time of diagnosis, his calcium was within normal limits, but his skeletal survey did show multiple lytic lesions, left humerus, skull, and a number of other bones in his body. So I started him on bortezomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone. He has an interesting kind of side issue, which actually I think has become the main issue. This is a gentleman who had sustained a knee injury while jumping out of a helicopter in Vietnam and had sort of lived with the pain of it and the arthritis, but now he's 63 and had just been about to have this knee replaced. In fact, it was the preoperative evaluation for the knee replacement that caused them to find this pancytopenia that he had. So I have not, he's one of the cases where I haven't added zoledronic acid because of this impending knee surgery. So his big issue, he has responded in terms of his treatment. He's had an improvement in his serum-free light chains and his cytopenias have also improved but his knee has become more of an issue for him. I'm not sure whether that's exacerbated by the pulsed steroids that he's getting with treatment or if it's just sort of the natural progression of an underlying arthritis. But this is to the point where the gentleman is now almost disabled. And when I saw him, when I first met him just nine months ago, he was riding his bike around and actually doing okay, kind of hobbling on the knee, but able to get around on it. So that ended up being kind of one of the foremost issues clinically for this gentleman. And Although he's a guy that I'd certainly direct towards transplant, I had questions for Dr. Gertz about, you know, how important it is to take care of that knee, which is so bothersome and so disabling for him before proceeding with his myeloma treatment further. So, Murray, maybe you can talk a little bit about this man and sort of, first of all, what your impression was talking to him. This is the proof that oncologists aren't going to be replaced by computerized programs because this is where real life interfaces with the literature. So here's a patient who goes to the doctor because his left knee, which is visibly swollen under his slacks, is his principal problem. The orthopedists see the cytopenias and say, well, we need to get this worked up. So then he gets drifted over to the find they have myeloma, which was not particularly symptomatic beyond his knee. Now his knee's been delayed a year and in fact, now in order to control his knee pain, he's on very large doses of narcotics and then acetaminophen with hydrocodone, 12 a day, and he can't function. And this patient could care less about his myeloma, could care less about a transplant, consolidation. He wants to get his knee fixed. And he looks to Dr. Rupert primarily to be his advocate to get him into the OR and all other considerations about, well, maybe we should delay your knee surgery to get your transplant done, they're irrelevant because this man can't function at all because he has a knee problem that clearly is mechanical in origin and does not appear in any way to be related to multiple myeloma. And since he's had a very, very deep response, 80% to lenalidomide bortezomib dex, there's probably time to get him through the knee surgery, rehabilitate him, and then move on 
This would be a patient who in a protocol would just have been taken off study because we can't adhere to the protocol guidelines. We've got to take care of what actually bothers him. And he's standard risk. He was 1114, normal metaphase cytogenetic. So there's time to interrupt therapy to deal with his primary complaint. So did that viewpoint get communicated today to this man? It did, yeah. And in fact, I'm not sure he would have accepted any other viewpoint. He wants, <laughs> he wants his knee fixed first and foremost. And if you see him, you'd understand the poor guy looked. Yeah, you know, we walked in there, and he was sitting in a wheelchair, which is not his normal mode of operation. And he was clearly in pain. And he had his empty bottles of oxycontin on the table, and he wanted me to refill those. That was his first and foremost issue. So yeah, that's the thing he's been. I've seen him monthly, and that's the thing he's been wanting addressed more and more. Unfortunately, until recently. Recently, it's been out of my hands. The VA had to agree to allow him to get his knee replaced locally. Unfortunately, that's going to take place at my hospital, so that will make that a little easier. His VA orthopedic surgeon was very leery about doing anything in this guy with abnormal-looking blood counts. Any other issues or questions about this patient? You know, I have one that I want to bring up as another point of education that I learned from Dr. Gertz today. Dr. Gertz's kind of opinion of the best way to monitor these patients who are being treated for myeloma. The summary I had sent to you, Dr. Love, talked about his serum-free light chain ratio coming down from 60 down to 30, which I had thought is a fairly impressive response, though certainly not anywhere near a complete one. But then when we looked at his SPEP values today, he's actually come from 3,500, his M-spike, down to 2,800, I believe it was, which is, doesn't sound quite as impressive. And Dr. Gertz was telling me a little bit about how he feels about that serum-free light chain ratio. Right. Serum-free light chains, I think, in my practice, is something that I measure routinely on every patient and almost every visit, particularly patients who have relatively low M-protein concentrations that are hard to measure serially. The problem is a lot is being made about the actual ratio, which probably has some utility in patients with renal failure. But in reality, what I really look at in my practice exclusively is the absolute value of the involved free light chain. And it's a matter of arithmetic. Because you can have a patient who has a kappa light chain, let's just say, of 20, and an uninvolved free light chain of 1, giving you a ratio of 20. When they come back, they could have a kappa of 10. The uninvolved might have dropped a 0.5, which actually is not even a change, because that's within the limits of measurement. The involved light chain has gone down 50% and the ratio is still 20. And the problem is that small changes in the uninvolved light chain can cause tremendous changes in the level of the ratio, particularly if the uninvolved is 0 0.1, 0 0.2. And although it sounds nuanced, it's a big deal in evaluating patients. So I try to push hard to look at the absolute value of the involved light chain, just like you would look at the G not G minus A or G divided by A, but just the G. Yeah, I guess the flip side of that question is in a patient who has somewhat waxing and waning renal function, even if they're you know, 1.4 to 1.8, as this guy is, is that SPEP value, that M spike, or even the absolute value of the serum-free light chain, are those reliable indicators in somebody whose creatinine may be fluctuating a bit? If it's to that degree, I think it is reliable, and I don't think you're going to make dramatic 
changes in those levels for modest changes in the serum creatinine. In our amyloid practice, we follow a lot of patients who actually develop renal failure, and the rise that you see in the light chain is less than you'd imagine.